our guest this week is in Congress. Um, and that's a fact, but it doesn't really capture, uh, I would even say most of what he's done. It certainly doesn't capture all of what he's done, but it doesn't even, to me, capture most of what he's done. He graduated Princeton University, which some could argue is the hardest school in the country to get into, certainly one of them. He's got a couple of master's degrees. Honestly, I quit reading at like four or five. I just thought, well, that's just too many master's degrees. And then he decided, you know what? This isn't quite challenging enough. Let me go get a PhD. Um, I don't even think he's 40 years old yet. I mean, he's still like a youngster. Oh, oh, and I forgot he was a Marine. We overlapped a little bit when I was in the house, but I was impressed pressed with him from the moment I met him. Part of that was because of the people who said, be on the lookout for Mike Gallagher. Serious-minded, not prone to gimmicks, not prone to grandstanding. He's sort of what we used to want in elected officials. I'm not sure if that is certainly not the path to fame, education, competence, hard work, service to the to the country. That's certainly not what a lot of people are looking for. I don't even know if he has a Twitter or an Instagram or TikTok account, and that seems to be what you have to have in politics these days. But if you like people that are educated, that have served the country, that are really smart uh, and serious about the issues, then I think you're going to like our next guest. Welcome to you, Congressman Gallagher. It's an honor to be with you. I was I was a, a freshman member of Congress in the uh, the Trey Gowdy fanboy society, and I would always pester you in the basement of the CHG when you were having breakfast by yourself. So I annoyed you sufficiently uh, just because I was such a big fan of yours from afar. You, uh, it is impossible for you to annoy anyone. Uh, although I have to admit, when I when I looked at you, I thought Wisconsin, and then I thought Green Bay, and I, then I thought about a terrible call made against my Cowboys. In a football game in Green Bay, so it's not fair to you that I blamed you for that Des Bryant almost catch, but I, but that's where I was at that point in life. I didn't realize you're a Cowboys fan. I had a funny uh, experience when I was a freshman. I think it uh, it must have been we were in the playoffs or some end of the season game. We were playing at Jerry World in Dallas, and I was walking off the house floor, and I was actually flying to Dallas to go to the game, and I'd never been to. Cowboy Stadium before. I was really excited. And I'm walking off with uh, with Francis Rooney, who also came in with me. And I said, hey, Francis, um, I'm going to, to Jerry World. Have you ever been to Cowboy Stadium? He's like, Mike, I built that stadium. So yeah, I've been there a few times. And he's like, you see the Capitol Visitor Center there? Like, I built that too. But oh, wow, you're much more accomplished uh, than I am. So all sorts of interesting people you meet in Congress. But that was a good time. We won that game too. Beat you guys on your home turf. And then we sent Mike McCarthy to you, uh, who is a, is a great guy and was a great for the, the city of Green Bay. So a lot of interconnections between Cowboys fans and Packer fans. Yeah, I, I, I remember that game very, very well because we had the game won. And uh, on like a third and 30, Aaron Rodgers hit a guy named Jared Cook on the sideline. Right. Jared Cook played at the <laughs> University of South Carolina. So I pulled for him for four years, and now I can't even utter his name because he – and then y'all kicked a field goal, the probably the only field goal that kicker y'all have made all year. But but yes, I don't want to I I like you. I don't want to think about that anymore. All right. I want you to tell us about Mike Gallagher growing up. I saw some connections between Wisconsin and California, and then I saw that you made your way to New Jersey. Tell us about a young Mike Gallagher. 
Yeah, so I was born in Green Bay. Uh, my family's been here for, I think, about seven generations. My family's all physicians. So my my grandpa worked, was a, worked for the state prison system, and then midway through his career, goes back to medical school, becomes a, an obstetrician. My dad's an obstetrician. All his brothers are obstetrician. My sister's obstetrician. So I'm born in this big kind of medical family that delivers babies. My dad also always had this idea of wanting to to start a restaurant. And so he started something called Gallagher's Pizza uh, about 20 years ago. So now there's about four little pizza places in Green Bay. So you could say that, you know, whether it was babies or pizza, the Gallagher's were in the delivery business uh, growing up. Uh, got to deliver pizza to the Packer locker room. True story. Uh, uh, when I was a kid, Brett Favre, because we were like, we had all the pizzas laid out in the locker room. We had salads too. And Brett Favre asked me to get him French dressing for his salad. And I ran very eagerly, got him the dressing. He said, you're all right, kid. Good job. <laughs> and I, that's the moment I knew I was destined for greatness. No. Um, so uh, when my, my parents got divorced when I was young, my mom remarried an LA County firefighter in California. So then I moved to California for the school year and I went to high school in California. My dad stayed in Wisconsin. So basically I kind of went back and forth for a lot of my childhood my mom has subsequently moved back to Wisconsin. My sister lives in Wisconsin. So everyone's in Wisconsin now. But yeah, it was an interesting, you know, at the time it seemed totally normal. But now looking back on it, it's not normal to be on planes all the time when you're a kid and live up, live in two very culturally different places. I mean, diametrically opposed, but I loved it. You know, I got two Christmases. I had two big groups of friends. I think it kind of forced me to like uh, become you know, good at, at making friends and talking to people. I don't know. I've, I haven't spent any time in a psychiatrist uh, chair analyzing my childhood, but was always, was never interested in medicine. Um, you know, after serving pizza to Brett Favre, I realized there's, there's no further I could go in the pizza business either. So went to college, um, you know, got into a great school and was really just always interested in foreign policy, but didn't know kind of where I wanted, you know, what area of the world I wanted to focus on until in fact, I spent my freshman year as a, a Spanish and Latin American studies major and then worked at a, uh, a resort in Cancun the summer after my uh, freshman year and got a scholarship to study Spanish from Princeton. So clearly money was not being spent wisely. There's a commentary on higher education in there. But then the next summer I'm in England and I'm working for the RAND Corporation and I get assigned to this project studying terrorist targeting methods. And this is 2003. So we just invaded Iraq. And that was the first time I, I started to think about, okay, why are we at war in the Middle East? What's going on with these groups that are trying to kill Americans and hate us? And I just became fascinated by the region. I became fascinated by this question of America's role in the Middle East, came back, changed my major, learned Arabic, uh, minored in Near Eastern studies. And in, in studying that, started to ask questions about, okay, well, what, 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 what do I do with these skills? Um, I didn't want to go to wall street, like a lot of my friends were doing. And I started to think, okay, maybe I could join the military. Maybe that'd be, that would be a good idea to both, uh, a, a good, um, way in which I could both serve my country, use this, this, uh, this language expertise and regional expertise I was doing. And also, and I think kind of what really drove it, Te uh, test myself. Um, you know, and I, I'd been, I'd been a really good student growing up. I tested myself academically, but I wanted that combination of a, a, a academic challenge, a physical challenge and a leadership challenge. And the Marine Corps just seemed like the hardest crucible I could throw myself into and really see 
what I was made of. Uh, and you know, it, it just was an awesome, awesome experience. It was the best decision I ever made. I had some professors that tried to talk me out of it just cause it wasn't viewed as something you did coming out of an Ivy league school at the time. And I'm glad I ignored their advice and just had a charmed career in the military. And that really set me on, on the path I'm on. I wasn't thinking about politics at the time at all. I don't come from a political family, but when it came time to run for office, I sort of thought about it as an extension of the service I had done in the military, a different way I could serve my country. How long were you in the Marines? I was in for seven years active duty and a couple of years in the reserves. When I was listening, actually, I, I knew some of that. And then I read some of that. It kind of reminded me, do not take offense at this because I know you beat him in the congressional race, Tom Cotton, who fancied himself the best runner in Congress until you came along. But Cotton, I think, went to Harvard and then was a lawyer, but didn't want to join the military as JAG. He wanted to be, you know, an infantryman. And and it, it just, I mean, if you're a Princeton graduate and you're smart enough to know more than one language, in your case, I guess three, uh, something in you said that's still not enough. I'm going to go put on a uniform. I'm just fascinated by what that something would have been. Well, you know, I, as I look back on it, I think there's a few things, right? I do think there's a feeling of, okay, the country's at war. And granted, in the era of the all-volunteer force, it's not like everybody you know is getting drafted. I mean, maybe you know a cousin or a distant relative who was serving, right? I mean, there's a tiny fraction of the American populace that was serving. But I did have this feeling that, you know, maybe I'd look back on it 20, 40 years and regret that I didn't step up and serve at a time my country was at war. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Um, I do think, again, related to and I, I'm not quite as, uh, you know, let's say uh, disciplined and competitive as, as the great Tom Cotton, though I am a better runner and I am much faster than him. And he refuses to even challenge me now because he was beaten so mercilessly in the congressional race. Uh, but he's much smarter than I am. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm like a homeless man's Tom Cotton. Um, but uh, I think it's like it, it related to wanting to test yourself. It really is that sense of, you know, until you stand in front of a platoon of about 45 Marines that you're in charge of, a lot of whom are, are older than you, right? Uh, and figure out how you can lead that group of people. Um, yeah, I just, I didn't want to miss out on, on that leadership test. Uh, I don't know what, I don't know what else uh, uh, played into it. Like, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I, I did. I wanted the challenge. I, I'm, I'm competitive. Uh, you know, when I got into the Marine Corps, you know, I, I loved sort of being able to kind of see how I would do on the physical fitness test, on the academic side, the leadership side, but it was just a combination of complex factors. There's a great poem by Yates uh, called An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. And he talks about why uh, this air, this airman's talking about, even though he knows he's going to die in the Great War, he still wants to go fly anyways. And he says, nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men nor cheering crowds, a lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. And I've always thought that phrase, like this lonely impulse of delight, it's just, it's like an adventure, right? It's like um, what Melville says at the beginning of Moby Dick, you know, I, I want to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Like I had, whatever that is, I had that in me as like a, a 20 year old uh, wanting to see the world and get outside of Wisconsin. So you've worked 
Herman Melville and Yates into an answer about why you joined the military. You and Tom in, Cotton. You, yeah, I wasn't going to include Cotton, but I, you, you, you just kind of proved my introduction. There are not many people like you in politics. I want to ask you about the Marines. This is something I don't understand, but some of my friends that served is there a movement to change the mission of the Marines? Is that is there a study going on? What, what should people know about that, if anything? Well, it's not necessarily a change to the, the mission of the Marine Corps. And I think the basic ethos of the Marine Corps to be what's called an expeditionary force in readiness or the president's 911 force, kind of the force you call when the proverbial stuff hits the fan. I mean, that's not going to change. Um but what the current commandant, the top dog in the Marine Corps, is trying to do is think through, okay, if if we're in a new era where we're no longer focused on counterterrorism in the Middle East and China is the pacing threat, what role do the Marines play in that, in solving that problem for the president if we're no longer kind of doing counterinsurgency operations in Afghanistan and Iraq? And certain things have to be different if China's the pacing threat, right? Uh, so what the commandant's trying to do is figure out how can you have small teams of Marines that are located in the first island chain, right, in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, so, you know, Japan, uh, potentially Taiwan um, itself and uh, the Philippines mostly uh, that can be inside what's called the weapons engagement zone. So, right, operate inside the, the range of Chinese weapons that basically create problems for the People's Liberation Army that are able to sink PLA ships, are able to partner with uh, our allies uh, in the region to do certain things, and also um, uh, are able to work seamlessly with the United States Navy. And because we've been, you know, I was part of a, a generation of Marines, you know, that didn't see a ship. You know, I fought land wars uh, in the Middle East. Like the commandant at the time was talking about returning to our amphibious roots. And my Marines used to joke, I had a Lance Corporal who, whenever he heard that phrase amphibious roots and we're sitting there in the desert of Western El Ambar, he'd you know, fill up his mouth with water, then he'd blow it out. And I'd be like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm in returning to my amphibious roots, sir. Um, so he's trying to figure out what does it mean for the Marine Corps to operate in partnership with the Navy to deny the PLA the ability to um, invade Taiwan in particular, but upend the whole order in the Indo-Pacific more generally. Now, this is very controversial because there's a group of retired general officers who think, okay, we shouldn't we shouldn't be getting rid of tanks, we shouldn't be getting rid of certain artillery systems, and hey, you're betting the farm on China. What happens if we find ourselves in a war with Iran? What happens if we find ourselves back in the Middle East? It, you know, if a if a war pops off between um, you know, uh, Hezbollah and Israel. And we, we help, I mean, we wouldn't probably get directly involved in that, but the point is we don't, we can't forecast the future. Therefore the commandant shouldn't be making all these bets. Now I've been broadly aligned with the commandant's vision. I think it's a smart thing. And I think if you can figure out the most stressful national security situation, i.e. how do we, how do we counter China? You'll have a force that's capable of taking on lesser challenges, i.e. Iran uh, and terrorist groups. But this is actually, I actually think the debate's healthy. It's great that it's its playing out. You have a lot of junior officers that are writing in War on the Rocks, in the Marine Corps Gazette. I, I think it improves the commandant strategy to have thoughtful critics. So it's an interesting time. The one thing I disagree with, and I'm sorry to go on, but I feel passionately about this, 
Former uh, Senator and Secretary of the Navy, Jim Webb, a, a man who I admire, by the way, he wrote an article, gosh, about a decade ago, where he talked about Congress needing to reclaim its war powers and just its role in foreign policy. And I, I thought it was just a brilliant article, and I agree with almost everything that's in there. He wrote an op-ed recently criticizing the commandant, saying the commandant did this all in secret. You know, Congress wasn't involved. He didn't end run around Congress. That's just not true. Uh, we, we've been involved from the start. We've debated this in, on the Armed Services Committee. We've debated it on the Sea Power Subcommittee. The commandant's been very forward-leaning in terms of putting his vision out there, inviting criticism. So that's that's one thing I think it's you can disagree with his vision, but you can't say he kind of did this in secret and and Congress wasn't aware that it was happening. Well, I mean, most members of Congress weren't aware because they just don't pay attention to, you know, their actual right. job. But the members on the Armed Services Committee that care about the Marine Corps and the Navy were aware of this. Well, you're right. That That is different from from the way the issue is framed in some quarters, that it was a sneak attack, um, and which is why I love being in the courtroom. Mike, because you have to listen to both sides and they get to question one another and cross-examine. You don't just get to make allegations or accusations that are proof-less. We're going to pause right there. More of my interview with Congressman Mike Gallagher is next. All right, you said something. I'm going to come back to it. But first, all right, you touched on China. I want you to take us on kind of a quick survey of the world. What should our listeners that maybe don't have a chance to follow the news, certainly not like you do. I mean, we'll start Ukraine-Russia. What what are a couple of things that you think about the most when you are thinking about that region? Well, I think about the fact that we just blew through, in a matter of months, the first two months of the war, we blew through seven years' worth of javelins and an entire inventory worth of Stinger missiles. And what we're discovering is that we just no longer have the productive capacity to build these critical weapon systems at the rate we're going to need them, not only if we want to continue to supply the Ukrainians, but these are the same systems that are going to be relevant in a fight over Taiwan with China. Uh, so our defense industrial base is incredibly brittle right now. And you think about you know the, the, the American way of war, or the story we tell ourselves, it's kind of like the story of World War II, and Freedom's Forge, where we get attacked, and then we activate private industry, and Ford starts building bombers, and you know we become the arsenal of democracy. Well, that's not going to work anymore because our supply chains are so brittle. We don't have the productive capacity. You know, the defense industrial base has become ossified. It's become highly concentrated among five defense primes, essentially. And in light of the strategy our adversaries are pursuing, something called the fait accompli strategy, where they move very rapidly to seize territory, we don't have time. We don't have months. Uh, we don't have weeks to ramp up productive capacity. So the lesson of Ukraine is we got to invest in domestic production of certain weapon systems, which relates to a bigger point that's relevant, particularly for China, Taiwan. Probably the biggest thing that happened in the Trump administration that nobody paid attention to, we got out of something called the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. It was a Reagan treaty, 1987, I believe. Basically, this limited our ability to field uh, intermediate range uh, ground launch missiles. And the reason the, the reason this was important is because China is not bound by this treaty. And what China has done to us in the last decade, it's not it's you know, they built We've been talking about a 355-ship Navy, and they went out and built one. Very concerning. Their Luyangs, Renhais, these advanced sort of destroyer equivalents are, are very capable ships. But the real thing they did is they went out and they built an anti-Navy. By that, I mean the PLA rocket force. They took advantage of the fact that they weren't bound 
by the INF Treaty, and they fielded all these sort of rocket force units that can basically target our ships at low cost and keep us out of the theater. Well, now that we're no longer bound by the INF Treaty, if we learn the lesson of Ukraine and we start to invest in certain weapon systems, we can kind of flip that logic on its head and do the same thing to them and get on the right side of the cost curve. So that's kind of the thing I'm obsessed with, watching Ukraine play out and trying to figure out what are the lessons uh, for uh, China, Taiwan. The other thing, and Trey, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. You know, if you look at the months leading up to Ukraine, um, and again, you know, uh, Putin invaded in 2014 uh, and, and then started signaling that he wanted the rest of the country, believed it was part of Russia proper. Well, what did the Biden administration do? The Biden administration repeatedly signaled they weren't going to use force. The president seemed to greenlight a minor incursion. Their entire deterrent strategy relied on the threat of sanctions and sternly worded statements. Okay, they thought that they could deter using soft power, essentially. And they pulled all our hard power out of the country. They sent our ships sailing out of the Black Sea. Well, that failed spectacularly, right? It failed on February 24th. So that's an important lesson uh, to learn. It's my view that in matters of deterrence, hard power predominates, particularly when you're dealing with dictators like Putin and Xi Jinping or the Ayatollah in Iran. They don't care if they're disinvited from Davos. They don't care about a statement coming out of COP26 that lectures them about not meeting their emissions targets. They don't care about that stuff. Hard power is the only thing that they care about. And if we rely on soft power to deter, we're going to have other deterrence failures in other regions of the world. And I think the reason the Biden administration did that, I think it I think it betrays um, just a naivety about the world. It betrays a tendency to mirror image, right? You had a high-level State Department official in the months leading up to the invasion say, well, Putin shouldn't do this. He should focus on building back better. Like as if as if like <laughs> their concerns about Green New Deal infrastructure is something Putin gives a hoot about. I mean, it's just, and that's the final thing I'm saying. I know I've, I've gone on way too long. It's what's called utopianism. If you examine the interwar period, the period between the First World War and the Second, this is the exact same thing that happened. You had a bunch of liberal elites that believed that, you know, the League of Nations could prevent war. In the late 20s, they even tried to outlaw war. With they, the, the Senate ratified the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Only one senator voted against it, by the way. Wisconsin's own Senator John Blaine, who was also the author of the 21st Amendment. So the next time you have a drink, you can toast <laughs> to Wisconsin and Senator John Blaine. But think about this, this idea that we could, we could just outlaw war. Well, what happened a few years later? After Blaine got censured, uh, and lost his Senate seat. And Kellogg, the Secretary of State, won the Nobel Prize for the Kellogg Brand Pact. Uh, Japan invades Manchuria, uh, uh, and Japan was a signatory. Uh, you know, a few years later, Germany, Italy, uh, and a few other signatories violate it, and we stumble into World War II. It's all, it's all the same thing. It's utopianism. It's, it's naivety. It's a mirror imaging. It's a failure to understand the mindset of the adversaries uh, that we face. So I know I just went on for like five minutes, but fired <laughs> up. I'm sitting here still shocked. You mean war was against the law and people still did it? I've I've never heard I mean, people actually violate the law. Well, you're the lawyer, but technically war is still outlawed, is my understanding, because it's been subsumed into the U.N. charter. So it's shocking to me. That, and that's that's it. Right. We thought we thought history had ended. We thought Kerry went out and said this like a week before the invasion. He said, 
You know, I thought we lived in a world where that kind of thing didn't happen anymore. So the idea of that a that a, that a, 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 an offensive war a, a, a for territory could happen was like so beyond the pale to these people that live in, you know, uh, the ivory tower or in the think tank universe and have never been at the pointy end of the spear. I think that's at a root at the root of a lot of our deterrence failures. I wish we lived in that world. I mean, it'd be great, but it's not the world we live in. I wish I lived in a world where instead of war, people would criticize my yacht versus their yacht. Uh, but th- but that's not the world that most of us. All right. Before we leave this, I do want to ask you, do you think that it was a failure of our intelligence or diplomacy to give the chief executive the best advice on what Russia might be willing to do? Or do you think they they did give him the best advice, but he just made and I'm not trying to get you to bash Biden or anyone else, but I do wonder, was it a weakness in decision making or was it a weakness in the evidence upon which you based that decision? Well, there, there definitely was an intelligence failure. And I say that as someone, you know, I was a, a human intelligence, counterintelligence guy. You know, I consider myself an intelligence. You know, that that's my trade. And I have enormous respect for the people in the intelligence community that are, that are doing a difficult job. And as the old saying goes, there's no intelligence uh, successes, only intelligence failures. Um, but it's kind of like the reverse of the intelligence failure we saw in Afghanistan, right? In Afghanistan, we overestimated the ability of the Afghan National Security Forces to defend their country. And in Ukraine, we underestimated the ability of the Ukrainians to defend and overestimated the professionalism and the competence uh, of the Russians. And I, I do I do think the intelligence community was telling the president that Putin was going to invade. I mean, Putin was telling us, you know, he, he wasn't making any secret about it. And, and even if he wasn't, I mean, he assembled a massive invasion force on the border. So only an idiot could think that that, you know, he wasn't going to do something with that, given sort of his history with Ukraine. So there was an intelligence failure. However, I do think the buck stops with Biden. Um, and I do think, you know, Biden has had certain longstanding beliefs on foreign policy. If nothing else, he believes in his own expertise when it comes to foreign policy and his ability to sort of navigate geopolitical crises, despite the fact that, to quote, you know, former Secretary Bob Gates has been wrong on every single foreign policy issue in the last 30 years. So Biden himself, I think, was never going to, you know, keep our our military trainers on the ground. He was never going to keep people in the embassy. You know, he was never going to unequivocally say to Putin, if you do X, I will do Y. And I so I don't know if it was him and his personal beliefs, uh, though I do think that's where responsibility lies, or it was just his advisors that said to him, well, we can pull out, you know, the threat of sanctions will be enough. Putin won't do this. Um, uh, I guess only when the historical archives are opened and we get access to sort of the transcripts of the debates in the National Security Council, we'll understand. Um, But at the end of the day, I think the president uh, is to blame. And if you look at if you look at what happened, um, the 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 Pentagon, um, the Pentagon released a strategy prior to the invasion called uh, what they're calling um, uh, integrated deterrence. So the cornerstone of our military, uh, our national defense strategy is, is this concept of integrated deterrence. And the Pentagon's been going around bragging that integrated deterrence worked in Ukraine. Right. Except for the fact that deterrence, in fact, failed on February 24th. And if you look at the tens of thousands dead, the hundreds of billions of dollars lost, you know, a greater threat of nuclear warfare than at any point since 
Able Archer or Cuban Missile Crisis. That's nothing to brag about. But the Pentagon strategy was was integrated deterrence. The basic idea of it is that we're going to disinvest in conventional hard power, and by integrating soft power, technology, and allies into our overall strategy, we'll actually be better positioned to deter. Now, the problem is the technology they're betting on, while important, is not going to be fielded until the 2030s at the earliest. Our allies are only willing to go as far as we're willing to lead. And in Ukraine, we've had some allies step up. We've had some allies that have said things but haven't delivered, the Germans in particular. And we have most allies in Western Europe that are that have you know jacked up energy policy that makes them dependent on Russia. Um and uh, when it comes to certain other elements of soft power, uh, again, um, you know, Tony Blinken saying, you know, shame on you in a mean tweet to Putin is not going to deter him. Right. That's it's just a, the whole strategy was misplaced. So it's ultimately it's Biden. But I don't think his advisors served him well. And let's go back to where, where I think all of this starts. And that's the shameful surrender in Afghanistan. And in my mind, though, I can't tell you that Putin himself said, oh, look at how weak the Americans look in Afghanistan. Therefore, I can get away with Ukraine. That seems totally logical to me. I mean, we look so weak and incompetent with our shameful surrender to terrorists in Afghanistan. I think that totally undermined our deterrent posture in Eastern Europe and even in the Indo-Pacific uh, and Taiwan. Um, and the administration was lying to us throughout that. They were trying to spin it as what did they call it? They called it a logistical success, right? I mean, the fact that we, I mean, that's like, it's like, I've said this before, but it's like calling the Donner Party a logistical success, right? Okay, like half the people made it to the West Coast, but the other half, you know, we were forced to eat them. I mean, but technically we got there. So I, the whole thing is is connected in my mind. Again, sorry to go on. I'm usually not this loquacious, Trey. No, I, look, look, I, I, I think for our, for our listeners, that uh that are unfamiliar with Mike Gallagher were probably wondering, God, why is Gowdy so high on this guy? You know, he's not on TikTok. Uh, he's not on the news, like blasting people. Well, now they get to know. He actually knows what he's talking about. You also have childcare responsibilities. I used to call it babysitting, and my wife said, when it's your own child, it is not babysitting. It's called something else. So I'm not saying you're babysitting. You are watching your children. So you know. The listeners don't know this, but you are at home with one eye on your on, on one of your children, I think, trying to. I hope I hope she's alive. Uh, she did avoid at, a while, while we one call. Yeah, well, she did sort of climb up next to me while, while we were talking and then steal some of my asparagus and eggs uh, and then went back to watching Sesame Street. So uh, certainly I'm not on TikTok. Uh, I don't think anyone should be on TikTok. I think TikTok should be banned, given what we're learning about Chinese algorithms. But it's interesting. I don't know how you managed it when you were in Congress. I've gone from I've completely gotten off social media personally. I've changed my account from a personal account to a press office. So I have to get some, a statement out there. I'll write it. I'll send it to my team or I'll do a video, but I don't engage with it at all. I've done that selfishly for my own sanity. I think it helps me think better and not react in the moment because a lot of times you have to restrain yourself, right? You get so angry about something dumb the Biden administration is doing, right? Like, you know, unconstitutionally canceling, you know, half a trillion dollars worth of student debt. And you just want to go out there and throw a bomb. I think it's useful to force yourself to take a beat and like, think through and then spout off. So I, I found that to be productive, but certainly I'm less famous uh, 
and cool as a result. But it's a trade-off I'm gladly willing to make. Yeah, it it you made the proper trade-off. And if nothing else, you have proven today that even someone as knowledgeable as you are, it takes more than 140 characters or however many characters you get in a tweet. Some of these are complicated issues, and you can't do it in a tweet. I also don't care what people who don't know me think about me. So why would I read like comments on Facebook? I mean, if you know me, I care very much. If you don't, um, all right. Um, before I let you go, I got to ask you a couple of what I think I hope you will find somewhat fun questions. They are less <laughs> heady, although that does not mean your answer will be less heady. What is your dream job? My dream job. Uh, well, I think my most likely endpoint is I'll just be like an obscure like professor of early Cold War history at some college in Wisconsin, sit, sitting in a log cabin, just you know, reading books and shining my shotguns, uh, preparing for the zombie apocalypse. Um, but I would, you know, I listen, I, I, I don't want to do a career in politics. I don't think it should be a career. I believe in term limits. We could debate that. This has been an amazing adventure, but it's not something where I'm thinking, you know, in 20 years, if I just play the game, I can be a committee chair. That's not my passion. Um, I would. I do think there's more I can do in the national security community. I would like to serve in a leadership uh, position in sort of like an e executive role in the national security community in the next decade, because I think this is a critical decade where we are going to find ourselves in a very contentious confrontation with China. So what exactly that job is, I don't know. Um, and then beyond that, like my, I don't know if my wife will go along with it, but I would like to uh, retire and be like a deacon at my local church. And uh, I want to, uh, since my dad sold the pizza business, if I ever have any success in the private sector, I want to uh, purchase it back for the family and just be <laughs> delivering pizzas and like helping out the local church. So. That's sort of I, uh, I want you to do all of that. There are a couple of things I have in mind for you before that happens, but I, I'm fine with a very, very, very end, uh, to quote a line from the movie Fletch. Uh, <laughs> what's a book that changed your life? Well, the one that has been on my mind the last two years and I think is really relevant uh, is a book called This Kind of War by T.R. Fahrenbach, and it's about the Korean War, and it's, it's so so timely right now. And it, it talks about how, uh, you know, after World War II, we demobilized, we brought the boys back home, we tried to civilianize the military, and we really struggled as a result early on uh, in, in the Korean War, based on a lot of the same naive assumptions that we've just been talking about. So I can't say enough things about this kind of war. It just talks about the brutality uh, of conflict. A book that's changed my life. I mean, a book I read every year. There's about three books I try and read at the end of every year. One is um, uh, is Elements of Style by Strunk and White, just because I think writing is so important. And there's that, that's like the best book. And it's short. And, you know, writing is a very difficult thing to do. And I, I find it's something I have to do a lot. So I read that. I read a book called Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher, which is about Washington crossing the Delaware. And I think it's the best book about sort of the military aspect of the American Revolution and just really gives you a sense of of contingency, like how a few things could have gone differently and America may not have existed. Really good book on leadership and Washington's leadership. And then finally, I read Mere Christianity uh, uh, every year. Uh, you know, I think no one does a better job of, you know, evangelizing for, 
you know, a, a lay audience than, than C.S. Lewis. And so those are kind of the three books I come to back to every year. But this kind of war right now, for anyone interested in foreign policy and warfare, I can't say enough good things about it. More of my conversation with Congressman Mike Gallagher coming up. Last question. You're a brand new member of the House. Tom Cotton is undefeated in the congressional marathon. Uh, He's a legend. Some people consider him to be the greatest of all time. And here comes this upstart from Wisconsin. What do you say to him when you pass him for the first time in that in that race? Do you hold back a little bit just because you you have respect for what he's done, or do you just go by him as quickly as you can and say something hateful and mean that C.S. Lewis would not appreciate? Well, the, the truth the truth is that superior strategy, not superior conditioning, won the day on that faithful day, and by that. I don't think Cotton was really aware that I would even pose a threat to him. So I exploited that fact. And he, um, I drafted off of him for about, it's a three-mile race, for about 2.9 miles, I drafted off of him. And then when I saw the end, I just sprinted uh, at the end and, and beat him. I don't remember saying anything <laughs> to him as I passed him. I, I wish I had something, some sort of knock on the army, I think would have been appropriate. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think after the race, because I was, I just thought it was so funny. I said, uh, I said something to the effect that, um, that victory had defeated Tom Cotton. In other <laughs> words, he had grown complacent in victory and, and thus was not prepared for the, the challenge that I posed. Oh my heavens. Uh, I can't wait till I hear from him about bringing up oh, his you name. Will. You will. <laughs> and, oh, I know I will. Uh, I have much different dream jobs for you than the ones that you laid out. And the next time we're together, I will share them with you. But I am happy for the very, very, very end to have you as a 90-year-old deacon owning a pizza shop. But between now and then, I think there's some other things you could do to benefit the country. And I look forward to talking to you about uh, talking with you about them. Mike Gallagher from the great state of Wisconsin. Keep your eyes on him. I don't know how long he's going to serve in the House, but make a point to find out what he's doing. And uh, look, you may uh, you may wind up with a slightly higher view of those who pursue public office than uh, than what the polling currently indicates. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you, Trey.